Welcome to the Creekside Community Church Podcast. If you don't yet follow Jesus, we want to provide you with a safe place to explore the Christian faith. If you are a Christian, we want to provide you with resources to help you grow in your faith and ultimately serve Jesus more effectively. For more information or to partner with us, visit our website at creekside.cc. Subscribe so that you don't miss any of our messages. We hope this content helps you take your next step with Jesus. So if God is good, like we just sang, why is there evil in the world? If God is all good, he doesn't want evil to happen, and he's all powerful, he could stop evil, why doesn't he? Uh, This is called the problem of evil, and it's a big question for Christians to consider and answer. And so in this series, we've been looking at eight of the Bible's answers to it, and we've been using all along this analogy of a puzzle that uh, the Bible doesn't give just one answer to this question. It gives a bunch of them, and we have to work to put them together. And so I'm going to be reviewing where we've uh, already gone, Um, but long and short of it is we've put together all the answers that we are going to put together. Uh, We've looked at eight, or if you want to count it, seven and a half answers, and put them together. Um, And I've made the case that actually, no, God is good, and he allows evil to exist for good reasons. Now, today we're talking about the problem of good, which is a strange title for a message. Um, But the idea is this, is If the question about the problem of evil disturbs you so much that you come to the point where you step away from Christianity or you won't consider it because of this problem, if you find yourself stepping away from Christianity because of this, uh, the issue is that does not answer the question about evil in the world. In fact, this is a question that every worldview has to consider and answer. And so today, what we're going to do is going to probably feel a little strange, and it's not going to feel much like a sermon, but we are going to get to some scripture eventually, okay? It's all right. right. Um, But here's a framework for understanding what we're doing. Last week, we looked at this fascinating scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul writes, the weapons of our warfare are not like these physical weapons, but on the contrary, they have power to demolish strongholds of the enemy, And then he goes on to say, we demolish arguments and every pretension that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. And so there's an element of, if you are a follower of Jesus, that you are called to understand other views of the world and be ready to, in essence, demolish them, is what Paul says. You need to be able to uh, address these other answers that other people give to this question and defend the Christian view. And so that's what we're doing today. We're going to look at, if you do step away from Christianity, what are you stepping towards? And there's three big possibilities in our culture today, and we're going to look at all of them. So first, story time. In 1835, a man named Charles Darwin visited the Galapagos Islands, and he looked at all the crazy animals that are on the Galapagos Islands, and there are some crazy animals on the Galapagos Islands. And uh, one of the things he observed is that the the finches there, well, they actually aren't finches, but he thought they were finches. The finches there um, have different beak sizes depending on the island and the habitat it's found in. And so what's found is, like, for example, 
um, on one island where those finches would mostly eat worms, the finches tend to have narrower, longer beaks, you know, for digging deeper, getting those worms. And then on other islands where maybe those birds uh, ate nuts, the, the beaks were actually tougher and bigger so that they could pierce and break those nuts. <clears throat> and so as he thought about this and considered this and um, also drew upon some other work in his time, he came up with this idea of natural selection. And the basic idea is that nature selects for those traits that are beneficial for survival. Right? So all things being equal, if you have two birds that are born and these birds eat worms and one has a longer beak and one has a shorter beak, which one's going to do better? The one with the longer beak, right? This is the theory of natural selection, that nature selects for those traits that are advantageous for survival. Now, what's interesting is, is Darwin saw this when it comes to what we would call microevolution. The word evolution just means change over time. And so what he saw is change in one species of bird over time. Microevolution within, within one species. Um, but he took this idea and he proposed in his book on the origin of species that this accounts for all the diversity of life we see today. Okay. The evolution answers the question of why is there the diversity of life? Because of natural selection over and over again happening for a long, 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 long time. That is what we call macroevolution, the change from one species to another. Um, but importantly, Darwin didn't actually see that. He just saw change within one species, not change between species. <clears throat> All right, so this is fun science, okay? All right, what does this mean? Um, I'm getting at this because most atheists, most people who believe that there is no God also are Darwinists. These two beliefs tend to go together in our time and culture. And so if you ask an atheist and if they are being consistent with their worldview and their understand, scientific understanding of the world, and you say, is there good and evil? If they are being consistent with their worldview, they would say, no, there's not really good and evil. What people have are views about good and evil, and the reason they have those views is because having those views is beneficial for survival. If it all comes down to survival of the fittest, and you're more likely to survive if you have better physical characteristics and better ideas, then our ideas about right and wrong are simply the product of what's been beneficial for survival. So you think it's good to help others? You only think that because that's helpful for more people to survive. Does that make sense? You guys see how this logic hangs together? And so on this note, uh, famous atheist Richard Dawkins writes, much as we might wish to believe otherwise, universal love and the welfare of the species as a whole are concepts which simply do not make evolutionary sense. What's he saying? Um, love sounds nice and taking care of everyone sounds nice, but if it really comes down to survival of the fittest, then you really don't have an evolutionary reason to care for the unfittest in society. See what he's saying? And what he's saying is perfectly at home in an atheistic or Darwinistic uh, worldview. Now, if you were here Friday night, um, 
And I'm starting with this worldview partly because Friday night we did this IQ church on Christianity versus science and trying to understand this debate. And um, I'm not going to review that whole thing, obviously, because that was like two hours. But just one point is that most atheists are philosophical naturalists. They would say when you press them that only what is testable by science is true. If you can't test it by science, it's not true. Now, the way this works with morals is most atheists are very hesitant to say there is objective moral truth. Why? Because you can't put it in a test tube or do an experiment on it. Does that make sense? Only if only what is testable by science is true, well, you can't put love or any law really into a test tube and test it. One of the things we talked about Friday night is the issue with this worldview, that it's actually uh, unsupportable by its own tenets. In other words, what I mean is, if you believe that only what is testable by science is true, here's a problem. Well, what experiment did you do to prove that? There is no actually scientific experiment you can do that proves that only what is testable by science is true. It's actually a claim about reality that you have to take on faith. So if that piques your interest, you're welcome to go back on our YouTube channel and uh, watch what we talked about uh, Friday night. But for now, here's the point. If you step away from Christianity and you're stepping towards Darwinism or atheism, you need to know you are stepping towards a view that says there is no ultimate right and wrong. Whatever views we have about morality... You can't know whether those are right or wrong because there is no ultimate right or wrong. The list of things that you think are moral, you only think that because they were beneficial for survival. Now, what's fascinating to me about this is that there have been groups of atheists, and some of them more consistent with their worldview, and some of them who do not like the natural conclusions of it. So one example of this coming to a head was in, um, I think it was 2005, there was a book written by a biologist the book was titled, A Natural History of Rape, Biological Bases of Sexual Coercion. Well, the authors were Randy Thornhill and Craig T. Palmer. Now, they were just writing what is the natural conclusion of Darwinism and a strict Darwinistic atheism. And what they said is, who knows if rape is right or wrong? Here's why we have rape, because it was beneficial for survival. Now, a bunch of feminists were like, what? <laughs> no. And uh, we're really mad at them. And their defense was like, I mean, you have the right to be mad at us, but this is just the natural conclusion of atheism. You cannot say rape is wrong. All you can say at the end of the day is that it was beneficial for survival, and that's why it is in the world today. That's it. Now, to be fair, most atheists don't go all the way down to this natural conclusion, right? In contrast to what their worldview would say, they would say something like, if you talk to them about morals, they would say like, hey, no, we should, you know, we should just honor people. Um, we, should, we should do the things that produce the most happiness in the most people or something like that. What that, the problem with that is the whole says who. We should do things that promote happiness. Why? Again, if this is your basis of reality, 
what experiment did you do that said our moral judgment should be what makes the most happiness for the most people? There's no experiment you can do that says that. There are some other issues with this view that we're going to talk about because they actually relate to uh, the next view as well. Uh, but before we go there, I know I, I've been reading a lot of quotes. Sorry about that, but they're just so good. So this is something that uh, Tim Keller wrote in his book, The Reason for God. He says, um, people, most of us believe, should not suffer or be excluded or die of hunger or oppression. But, and now he's talking about this worldview, but the evolutionary mechanism of natural selection actually depends on death, destruction, and violence of the strong against the weak. These things are all perfectly natural. So on what basis then does the atheist judge the natural world to be wrong or unfair or unjust? What Tim Keller is getting at is that if this is your view of the world, the logical conclusion you have to come to is that there is no ultimate right or wrong. There is no ultimate right or wrong. And if there is no ultimate right or wrong, you have no basis to say... Christians, how could a good God allow evil in the world? Because you don't actually believe in evil. Do you guys see the issue? All right, let's move on. Let's talk about relativism. I love talking about relativism because uh, it's so common in the cultural air we breathe. Uh, let me give you a brief history of this. Uh, the idea of relativism evolved really and, and grew with the practice uh, and, and the area of study of cultural anthropology. So, so as more as more anthropologists studied various cultures around the world, they're like, whoa, different cultures have different moral values. And people's consciences who live in those cultures are very much shaped by, by their culture. So for example, if, if you grew up in a hunter-gatherer society, what kind of people are you going to admire and hold up as role models? Strong people, right? And good hunters, like Phil. Phil would be a great, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but the point is this. They, they discovered that, yeah, to a large extent, our values and what we think of right, as right and wrong are culturally informed and culturally formed. And I think that's a true observation. The problem is they took that one step further, and said, therefore, all there is is opinion or point of view. There is no morality. There are just cultural, cultural concepts of morality. You think murder is wrong, they would say, not because murder is wrong, but just because you grew up in a culture. And that culture informed your conscience and taught you that murder is wrong. If you had grown up in a culture that said murder is great, you would think murder is great. That's the view of relativism. Everything is subjective. There is no ultimate truth, and there also is no ultimate right, of wrong, right or wrong. It all comes down to your point of view. So expressing this idea, Tom Robbins wrote, whether a man is a criminal or a public servant is purely a matter of perspective. This is relativism, and this is where it leads. Now, if you have a relativistic worldview, then what is good in this worldview is toleration, Right? We all disagree basically about everything, so we should all agree just to get along with everyone and allow any worldview or any um, perspective of values to work. Now, there are some problems with <laughs> this. 
some big problems. One of the big ones I love to point out whenever I get to talk about relativism is how it's actually a self-defeating view. What I mean is this. The foundational claim of relativism is that there are no absolutes. There is no absolute truth. That is a claim about reality. That is an absolute. Right? So if every viewpoint really is relative, then so is the viewpoint that says every viewpoint is relative. Do you see the problem? Uh, it's almost like if relativism is right, then relativism is automatically wrong, <laughs> which is a clear sign that uh, this view of the world does not actually make sense. But if you find yourself stepping away from Christianity and stepping towards relativism, it's just a matter of cultural perspective. We should just tolerate everyone and, and get along. The problem is this. That's not how any of us actually live our lives. The C.S. Lewis talks about this idea in uh, Mere Christianity, uh, one of his more famous works, but he talks about how like, you know, if you want to cross a thief and they try and justify themselves by like, hey, you know, it's just, it's just my point of view that stealing is okay. If you steal from that thief, they probably will not hold that perspective very long. How dare you? That none of us actually live as if everything is okay. Or to use, and I know this is a, a little bit explicit, but it's purposely so, right? No one, even the strongest atheist I know, or moral relativist, would say, hey, if you grew up in a culture that says torturing babies for fun is okay, then it's okay. No one says that, right? Torturing people for fun is wrong, period. And all of us know that and live as if that's true. There are certain things that are just right or wrong, period. It was really fascinating in my research for this message. I came across the story of a cultural anthropologist who was studying a society and a culture that was very oppressive towards women. And she had this conflict because on the one hand, she wanted to say, you know, values are just culturally informed and no culture is better than any other culture. And on the other hand, as she was spending time in this culture, she was like, I want to change it, right? Like, this is not okay the way they treat women in this culture. I need to stand up for women's rights and teach them to stand up for women's rights. But says who? And so at the end of the day, she was like, well, I don't know what to do with that, but I'm still going to stand up for women's rights. <laughs> Which we would affirm as Christians because everyone's made in the image of God. But if that is not your ultimate view of the world, you have no basis to say, this is right, this is wrong. The other problem with both of these two views, uh, so if you find yourself stepping towards an atheistic worldview or a moralistic, uh, I'm sorry, a relativistic worldview, both of these would usually say, okay, well then what's, what law should society have? What should we all agree to adhere to? And most of them would say some version of democracy, like whatever we agree on. You get a group of people together, and we need to come to a consensus about what we think is right and wrong. Again, though, there are major problems with that. If you went to Germany in the early 40s, and they said it's Nazism is right, does that make it right? 
just if you're in a society and everyone thinks it's okay and votes that it's, it's okay to abuse people, that doesn't make it okay, right? It doesn't work that way. The other problem with this is that we hold up as examples and admire people who actually stand against the majority when the majority is wrong, right? If this view was true, we shouldn't do that. If this view is true, those are bad people. If you're a good person, you go with the majority, period. If you're a bad person, you go against it, is what this view says. And yet, we all respect and admire, most, most atheists and relativists admire figures like Martin Luther King Jr. Said, this is how apparently society is agreeing to treat black people, and that's wrong, and I'm going to stand against it. We admire people who stand up against wrongdoing, even if they're in the minority. And we should. But if this is your view, you can't do that. You are stuck saying that's bad that they're going against the majority. You see the issues with these views? All right, here's the last choice. Uh, stepping towards some version of Eastern spirituality. Near 500 BC, uh, a wealthy prince named Siddhartha Gautama finally came out of his palace and uh, he had been very sheltered, according to tradition. And when he came out of his palace, he saw three things. He saw an old man, he saw an ill man, and he saw a dead person. And he was deeply troubled by the realization of, wow, this world is full of suffering. It's fascinating. He was dealing with the problem of evil, wasn't he? Uh, he became known eventually as the Buddha, the teacher of how to escape this cycle of suffering. So <clears throat> Buddhism borrows some things from Hinduism, but then they go in different directions. So this is just very, very, very 30,000-foot flyby. Um, but both of these worldviews teach um, that there's this cycle of birth, suffering, and rebirth. Okay? You're born, you suffer, you die. You're born, you suffer, you die. That's where we get the idea of karma from, right? If you do more good, then you'll have a better life, but you'll still suffer and then die and then be reborn and suffer and die over and over again. This is the view of both Hinduism and Buddhism. And so what religion comes to teach in these worldviews is how do you escape this cycle? That's what salvation is in this view of the world. It's not doing enough good that you get a better life next time you're reincarnated. It's actually how you just get out of this cycle altogether and stop being born and suffering and dying. That's, that's the idea of salvation. Now, Hinduism answers this one way and Buddhism another, but they both emphasize engaging in certain practices so that you can escape the cycle of suffering. That's the goal. Escape the cycle of suffering. Now, now what's interesting is most of the time, if you come across someone who's into like Eastern spirituality or New Age stuff, they're not really a Buddhist. They don't adhere to all those things. They steal some practices of Buddhism, and they're not really a, hin a follower of Hinduism, um, but they steal some ideas and practices of that. Uh, they kind of put it all in a blender a little bit. Um, but the long and short of it is this. The, the average person you come across who adheres to this usually has the worldview of pantheism, that everything is divine. This is an idea that comes from Hinduism. It says everything is divine. And really enlightenment is engaging in these practices so you get to this point where you can realize that. 
that everything is unity. And the suffering is not a genuine problem. It's a problem of perception. So what are the issues with this? Let me share with you a Zen poem that expresses this idea. If you want to get to the plain truth, be not concerned with right and wrong. The conflict between right and wrong is the sickness of the mind. Once again, what you come across naturally at the logical conclusion of this view of the world is there is no ultimate right or wrong. Right and wrong is just an issue of your perception. Or the way Buddha taught it is that um, suffering comes from attachment. You suffer, you experience grief and loss because you are attached to the thing that is now gone. You need to become enlightened and become detached to everything. But either way, you slice it. At the end of the story, in this worldview, everything is divine. Now, the issue is that maybe you can like sit on a mountain and look at creation and be like, yes, everything's divine. I think there's some problems there. But I could see someone sitting in that place and thinking that, okay? So beautiful. Everything's divine. But if you go the route of pantheism, you are stuck saying this at the end of the day. Murder is divine. What? And it's not so much bad as your attachment to that person was bad or something. Abuse is divine. If everything is divine, so are the worst evils in our society. And they're not actually evil, just your perception of them is off. And you need to become enlightened so you realize they're not really evil. They're just part of the the grand oneness that is the world and the universe. I struggle with that, right? Good is oneness and peace with the universe. So once again, I want to be clear. Most people who uphold, and if you push them, who hold one of these worldviews, might not say exactly what I just said, because most of us, to be honest, have not examined our worldview at length. Most people who are atheists or relativists or kind of new agey have not just sat down and worked through what is the logical conclusion of this view of the world. But when you do that, this is where it leads. And what's interesting is all three of these lead to there is no objective moral truth. There is no ultimate right and wrong. You guys see that? How each of them in their own way lead that direction. But the problem is, to my atheist friends, I would say some things really are evil, even if they encourage survival. Sorry. Rape is evil, even if it encourages survival. And we should stand against evil, my relativist friends, even if that means going against the majority. It does not come down to simple consensus. There is right and wrong, and we should stand up against wrong. And if everything is divine, so is murder, torture, and genocide, but none of us actually live as if that's true. The way we actually live our lives betrays that all of us, somewhere in us, believe there is right and wrong. That's just how we live and function in the world. There is some kind of truth outside of us. There is some kind of good outside of us that we are all accountable to. 
And so here's the point I want to make, is if you choose to follow Jesus and you say yes to his gift of life, then you have to wrestle through the problem of evil. If God is good, why does he allow evil? It's a big question. That's why we've been wrestling with it the last four weeks. But if you step away from that, you have a whole bunch of other questions. You have to wrestle with the problem of good. Is there ultimate good and evil or not? And if you say no, you end up in some affirming some really weird things that I don't know anyone who actually would want to affirm. I believe there is objective moral truth because we all live that way. And I believe the best explanation of that is because there is a good God at the end of everything. All right, deep breath. Let's review. So if you've been here following along, these are the eight answers to the problem of evil we've been discussing and sharing. Um, So let's say these out loud so we get them in our heads a little more. Are you ready? Here we go. People, redemption, others, body, later, everything, mystery, so. So let me review, and then we're going to say them again after I review. So people, why would a good God allow evil? Answer number one, because God wanted relationship, not robots. He created a world where we could choose him or reject him, and when we reject him, evil is the result. R is redemption. God loved us so much that even though we chose evil, Jesus came 2,000 years ago to take our evil upon himself, to break the power of sin and death in the world. Others, we believe that some of the evil we experience is not due to God or people, but spiritual forces of evil, and that they are responsible for some of the evil we experience in the world. Body, we believe that the church is called to be the body of Christ that we are to be Jesus' hands and feet and continue his work of pushing back evil in the world. L is for later. That Jesus is going to finish his work and renew this world completely when he returns one day, but he's waiting. And why is he waiting? To give people time to hear the good news and to repent and to respond. Because if you want a world with evil, you cannot have any evil doers in that world. And the good news of the gospel is that when you respond to this good news, God transforms you from the inside out so you can be a part of that world. In the meantime, we believe that God uses E, everything. That God is so wise and powerful that he can bring good even out of evil things. M is for mystery. We have to admit as Christians that God is bigger than our minds can comprehend and that he's doing stuff in the world that we cannot know about. And so he is probably stopping evil from happening even right now. And we can't see that because it's not happening, right? You can't see something that's, that, that doesn't happen, actually happen. But that God may be stopping evil and we just can't see that because it's not happening. And then S for sow, we reap what we sow. Some of the evil we experience is our own fault and our own doing. All right, so let's say it one more time. You guys ready? Faster this time. People, redemption, All right, good job. All right. Um, Awesome. So uh, I also want to remind you that next Sunday is our final uh, Sunday in this sermon series. And next Sunday is a Q&A time. But once again, just total honest confession, I do not think well on my feet. So uh, you have to submit your questions before 
like next Sunday, so I have time to research and prepare and answer them. So I want to take your questions that have not been answered yet on the problem of evil. So this is a QR code you can scan to submit your questions. Um, or if you don't want to go that route, you can just go to our website, creekside.cc. Then if you click on events on the top, one of those events is Q&A Sunday. And if you click on that, you can submit a question on the problem of evil. So that's what we're going to be doing next Sunday is I'm going to be doing my best to answer whatever questions you have. So once again, the best explanation for the existence of moral absolutes is an absolutely moral being. In other words, a good God. Like we sang at the end of our worship time, you are good, you are good. This comes several places in Scripture. Genesis 131 says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. There is good. And where does it come from? It's rooted in a good God. And so when this good God chooses to create a world, he creates a good world. The way Psalm 119.68 says it, you are good and you do what is good. <clears throat> because God is good, everything he does is also good. Because that's, that's a description of his character. And he always acts in line with that character. And so everything he does is good. That goodness is rooted in God. Now C.S. Lewis brought up one more point on this topic that I, and I would like to close with this thought. As soon as you say yes, there is moral truth. Some things are right and some things are wrong, period. It's not just a matter of perspective. It's not just a matter of survival of the fittest. And it's not that everything is divine. As soon as you say that, you're in trouble. You've put yourself on the hook, so to speak. Because as soon as you say that, you also have to admit that at times and places in your life, you have broken those morals. Yes, there is good, and I have failed to do that good at certain times, places in my life. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 2. He says, therefore, every one of you who judges or condemns is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. Do you think any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment is revealed, he will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil or is evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, for there is no favoritism with God. In other words, again, as soon as we say, yes, there is absolute good and evil, there is right and wrong, in the next breath we have to confess, 
and I have done wrong. Which is probably part of the reason many people don't like the idea of moral truth. And so where does this leave us? It leaves us back at the foot of the cross, once again, saying there is right and wrong, and God, I have done wrong, and I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I need your grace and your mercy for all the ways that I have done wrong. And so in closing today, we're going to do something a little different. Uh, We are going to read a corporate prayer of confession together. And so uh, if you're comfortable and if you have chosen to follow Jesus or if you in this moment would like to make that decision, I want to invite you to pray this with us out loud and confess that we all have done wrong and therefore we all need God's grace. So if you would, pray this with me. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Help us amend what we are and direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Amen. We pray for us. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your ultimate standard of right and wrong. And even though it convicts us because we all have gone against it, we thank you for your grace and your consistent heart of forgiveness and grace towards us, giving us a fresh start through you, Jesus. I pray that we would Um, grow in becoming the kind of people who more and more follow your will, who are transformed from the inside out by that same grace. God, I pray for us who have chosen to follow you. I pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment. And if there are neighbors of ours or friends of ours who has any of these worldviews that we've talked about today, that you would give us wisdom in knowing how to speak to them, that we would speak the truth in love to them and show them how the logical conclusion of any other view just really does not work. And I pray that you would open their minds and hearts to see that truth, the truth that is in you, Jesus. Thank you again for this time together. In your name we pray. Amen.